Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the Noise Creators Podcast. This week I'm really excited to be joined by Adam Nali Get Good from the band Periphery, who's based out of Bath, UK. This was a really fun talk. One, because I actually enjoy Nali's work. I have to say, like, you would never call me a guy who likes prog metal or anything, but when bands bring in that type of stuff to my studio and I'm charged with doing it, which I actually enjoy doing those type of records. They always seem to bring me in the Animals as Leaders and Periphery records he's done. And these are just works of fucking art, man. They're so, so good. And then you talk to him and you listen to this conversation and you totally get it that this is a guy with his head screwed on straight who really, really gets it. And I think we have an awesome, awesome talk that's really insightful about why he's able to make such killer records take a listen to this check out his profile noise careers listen to his spotify playlist read his discography his biography and get to know the man behind this awesome music check it out One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service, and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your chain for recording your voice today? Hey, so I have, uh, I guess a little bit of a, a ghetto setup. Um, I'm actually away from home at the moment. I'm in, I'm in Washington DC recording a new album with my own band. Oh, and, great. Uh, great. That's exciting yeah, to hear. So I'm just staying in a, a rented apartment here and I managed to beg, borrow and steal uh, a little vocal chain together. I have a, a blue baby bottle nice. uh, microphone running into a Focusrite Scarlet interface, uh, just a little USB powered one. So something to get the job the most, done. Yeah, it's going to get the job done, but maybe it's not the most flashy, uh, flashy setup here. I've also got uh, a pen as a pop filter. I've got that just uh, <laughs> not, not very, held with an elastic good. band over the the capsule, so hopefully there's not too much popping. Not everybody knows that trick. And, uh, it's an amazing trick. So it's a good one for sure. So obviously, we we got into a little of that. You're in periphery, but tell me about your background in music and walk us through your early days on how you get to where we are today. I guess the, the best place to start was my, my dad was, well, he's an amazing piano and organ player. Mm -hmm. And from a very young age, I just wanted to be like him. I wanted to play piano because I saw him doing it all the time at home. So from, from a very young age, I was taking piano lessons and listening to classical music, which was just his realm of music. As I got older, I wanted to play saxophone, but my school told me I had to play clarinet first, which in hindsight was terrible, terrible Ooh. information. It, it, it's managed... really funny. This is a reoccurring thing on the podcast is this happens a lot. 
Yeah, yeah. It happened again later when I when I wanted to play guitar. They told me I had to play acoustic guitar first, but <laughs> that time I wasn't having any of it. Yeah, I never nice. actually made it to saxophone. I just played clarinet for a number of years. Hmm. Um, and then when I was in my mid-teens, I started playing guitar. And that was really uh, a huge change for me because up to that point, I'd always had very formal music education and you know weekly lessons and that kind of stuff. And when I took up the guitar, I just taught myself and, and used my ear, which was always my strong point. I was never very good at reading. Mm-hmm. I could it was possible, but uh, I would always just try and listen closely. And if I could hear something properly, then I could probably figure it out. So once I got to playing guitar, that seemed to be the uh, the opportunity to let fly with that. And um, that kind of started a, a whole new way of thinking about music for me. And I kind of went back and taught myself a lot of the theory that I'd learned formally, again, kind of more based around just uh, experiential learning and the guitar as an instrument. And then a few years later, or about six years ago, uh, I, I was already good friends with the guys in Periphery who are based over in the States. I should add, I'm from England. Yes, so I, 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 I hope everybody picked that up by now. Maybe, although <laughs> my accent kind of morphs a little bit, and I've been here. When you first came on, you didn't you didn't sound as English, but I knew from the site that you were from England. Right, okay. Well, I, I don't know how I feel about that, but I think it just happens. You know, when I'm surrounded by uh, people from the States all the time, and especially when you're working in an environment like the studio where there's just constant uh, talking and things going on all around, to you, I think it just it happens hmm. by uh, osmosis. So anyway, I was already friends with them, and they happened to need a. Well, they wanted a producer for an album for mm-hmm. their second album, and they'd already decided they wanted me to come over and help them out with that. So how and, had they uh, heard of you before this? This is all just through the internet. Actually, mm-hmm. I was talking with uh, the main guitarist Misha, mm-hmm. who founded the band um, for a number of years before we we even met in person. He he just happened to be flying through the UK quite frequently on on his way to Mauritius, where his parents were living, and uh, we managed to just meet up in person a, a couple of times, and it was mostly mostly founded on um, just a love of, of the same kind of music, hmm. uh, especially bands like Sixth and Meshuggah, and we bonded nice. over just listening to that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, they, they So were you guys had, talking on a message board, or what, what was it through? This was all through MSN Messenger, I believe. Wow. Yeah, really going back in time. And yeah, so eventually they needed a producer for that album. They did the first album themselves, and then you know they, they thought it would be nice to have me there the second time. And that was pretty early on in my producing days as well, so that was a leap of faith on their part. And then uh, right before we did that album, actually, they lost their bassist, and I ended up playing all the bass on the record. I'm not really a bassist, uh, or at that point, certainly, I wasn't a bassist by trade, but you know, we got things done. And afterwards, they asked me if I'd join, and I actually enjoyed it so much. And I really enjoy the role of bass in their music that, uh, that I kind of ditched my main instrument and ditched my band in the UK that I was in at the time and, and ended up joining Periphery. Nice. So where did the producing thing come into play? How did you go from musician to being the recording producing guy? I think it's kind of a common theme, at least for for musicians of my age or people that, that existed in the, the home recording world. You know, we have an amazing world at our fingertips now where on your laptop you can create uh, a completely professional sounding record. And I was just trying to make my own demos for myself and for my band at the time. I was just never satisfied with what I was achieving. And it's kind of in my nature. I, I'm, I'm quite persistent when, I, when I'm trying to achieve something. I started out just wanting to sketch out ideas, but I always hated that it didn't sound like a professional recording or even something coming close to that. And uh, actually with a lot of help from guys like Misha, who I wasn't in a band yet with, or um, another one of my good friends, Des Nagel, who plays in a band called Good Tiger, um, they showed me the ropes of 
the kind of modern way of recording stuff, you know, using um, programmed drums and DI'd guitars and all that kind of stuff. And uh, that was that was awesome. I, I really spent a huge amount of time probably ignoring getting better at my instrument and instead just focusing on recording ideas and maybe even just writing one simple riff just to focus on mixing it and engineering it and making it sound good. And then the last few years, you know, the last four or five years for me have really been kind of moving from that world over into the more grown up side of of production and engineering, which is working with all live instruments. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the realm which I like to inhabit these days, or maybe kind of straddle between the two of them where, you know, always recording with real drums and trying to keep them natural and, and, uh, you know, really preserving the the dynamics and sounds from the, uh, from the original recording. At the same time, I'm very happy to use all sorts of technology on, you know, in any place where it might sound good. Nice. I like that. Um, so do you have your own studio? I do, but because I'm always on the road, or a lot of the time I'm on the road, it doesn't make sense for me to have like a big premises just sitting there not being used. So I just have a home studio where I can record guitars, I can record vocals and bass, of course. But whenever we do drums, uh, I'll outsource to uh, a studio, and I'm quite spoilt for choice, really. Mm-hmm. In the UK, there's some really excellent studios within an hour, an hour and a half of, of where I live. And if anything, I think it's very nice to be able to go to a different location rather than just setting up drums in the same spot every time and doing the same thing every time on every record. I kind of have to start from scratch every time, and um, that's something which I certainly enjoy. You know, in the in the near future, I'd love to be able to expand to having my own place to record um, instruments like drums. But you know, it maybe will require more settling down on my heart. My my part so i don't know if i'm quite ready for that yet nice yeah i think that there is something that like what you said there is like you know in my days when i didn't have my own drum room like starting at a different studio and like with different unfamiliar gear there was something that really really was like fun and added a level of creativity i think that now that like when i'm just like okay well here's my mics that i use for drums and here's drums that i have and it's like it gets gets a little bit more cookie cutter sometimes yeah, well, I think it's a trade-off. Obviously, you have familiarity on your side now. You know exactly what you can get from your own instruments. And uh, mm-hmm. I've certainly been burned a couple of times, whether it's you know something about the the ambience of the studio that hasn't I haven't captured well or didn't sound good, or working with a house engineer and trusting their judgment and have them you know maybe do something which push the raw recordings in a direction that you wouldn't have liked, but. I think it's all for the better. And certainly now with that experience, I'd, I'd love to be able to make my own studio and kind of try and get all the best sounds, you know, try and find a room or design a room that's going to sound uh, the best to my ears, having tried all sorts of rooms from huge, expensive studios to really small, dead kind of closet recording setups for, uh, for drums. Um, I think I've kind of found something which I really like, and I'd love to pursue that. Nice. So... You talked about playing guitar, now you're a bassist. Do you play any other instruments? Well, I can still kind of residually play piano a little bit. I haven't played it in a long time. Um, but, you know, certainly enough to play synths and things like that. And I'm trying to play drums. I think drums actually might be my favorite instrument of all <laughs> of them. Uh, and I'm really quite obsessed with drums and recording drums and tuning drums. And I, I even own a few kits of my of my own, but I'm not that capable beyond playing some ACDC or something like that. Um, So I would love if I had some free time and a space to be able to set them up. I would love to really dig into playing drums and, you know, not be the flashiest drummer in the world, but be able to hold down beats and make them sound good, you know, have good feel and, and hit in the kind of way that, that records well. Nice. That would be, that would be my project for sure. 
And I think that's that thing. What's nice is, is you totally get it because you're first talking about being able to do the simple things like an ACCDC thing first and then do it instead of where it seems like so many people these days, it's like, oh, I'll just play all these Travis Barker beats that I can't even really play properly. And it sounds terrible yeah. when I hit the drums. Yeah, totally. I think that's one benefit that as a producer or engineer you get is you kind of, it puts the perspective in place. Like you have to be able to play the simple stuff well and make it sound good. Mm -hmm. And then from there you can talk about playing the technical stuff, but it's all going to fall apart if you can't do the most basic things well. Nice. So... When you're producing a band, we, we've kind of been having this question where we do it on like a scale. So like there's like the Steve Albini approach where it's like you're kind of going to comment on like if you think it was a good take or not. But past that, you're just getting good sounds. And then there's like the John Feldman school where you like rewrite the whole song for the band. Where do you see yourself often being on like that scale of things? I think I'm probably closer to the Steve Albini end of things, not entirely, but I think because of a lot of the time I'm working on a time constraint with bands or I'm flying in or I'm touring somewhere and I stay behind for an extra week to work with a band, something like that, it can be quite time consuming to have to have to kind of gut songs and rewrite them. And what I like to do if I can is get involved with the band remotely before they're even in my studio and give them a bit of feedback on their demos. But my ideal situation really is to work with a band who have a really good song already, who, um, who have the arrangement pretty tight, and then to be able to spend the time in the studio really adding that last, you know, that last 10% and adding all the ear candy and bringing out the best of what's already there. Now, you know, with my own band and in the process we're at right now, which is pre-production, it's really fun to get in there and, and work on the songs on a detailed level. And uh, I'd love to be able to do that. But most of the time with the time crunch and with me really wanting to be able to put on my engineer hat and make the thing sound amazing, um, it's always frustrating when you're dealing with players that are learning parts for the first time just seconds ago and can't perform them to the standard that maybe is required or... You know, it, it, I think there's there's pros and cons to to both approaches. But for for me, I think I really like it when most of the stuff is there, and I can just concentrate on that that last few percent. Nice, I like that. What do you bring to records most often? Do you think one one element that's kind of overlooked with producers is just things like timekeeping and mm -hmm. schedule. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be a really important part of making a record, and something which I'm quite a stickler for. I really like to set working hours. I really like to. Uh, Kind of keep people in in a good mood, in a good headspace. Um, you know, just keeping the mood light and making sure that everyone knows when they have to be in the studio each day. Not burning out by working late nights, then having to come in early the next morning to continue recording. That kind of thing, I think, certainly adds to the to the sessions. And then, just in general, I think I'm quite good at being reactionary to what bands are doing. And I think this kind of plays off what I was saying just now about the state of songs that that I like them to be in when I when I'm working with the band. I think. For me, I can come up with ideas very quickly when there's a, a good skeleton there. I can find ways of getting the best out of what's already there in that situation. Beyond that, you know, I'm, I'm not averse to doing things like playing guitar and bass on, on the recordings uh, mm -hmm. that, I, that I do, and I do end up doing quite a lot of that a lot of the time. So, you know, I, I think for me, really, the, the biggest points are beyond just making it sound good, just keeping the vibe good and making sure the band can are, are in the right headspace to make the best music they can make. Oh, that, that's very good. So what's a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio? Well, I think the, the most common one, of course, is under-preparation, of mm -hmm. course. 
I think there's nothing worse than than getting a band in and realizing that they don't even really know how their songs go or how to play riffs and you have to spend a lot of the time just cobbling stuff together from punch-ins and I, I've even done a session once where a guy was literally recording bar by bar sometimes slowed down so that he could play the technical stuff um, with a, a guitar pro printout on his leg just looking down like literally learning it note by note and I think that was because he, re- he wrote it that way and he just never really spent the time to learn it and just figured he could wing it in the studio. And you know I, what? You, I have been you can make those there, things yeah. happen, but it's, it's a very, very dire way to work. Ooh. Uh, it, there, there is something very funny because it's like it, you have to be a pretty good level of skill to know how to do the Guitar Pro printout and all that stuff. But then it's so funny because I do feel like a lot of time when I get that in the studio, it's like, oh, cool. You didn't learn how to play this, though. You just wrote it. Yeah, and sometimes Guitar Pro, you know, you might do a stretch or a position shift that you think sounds awesome or, you know, it seems easy on there, but when you're actually recording it, it's impossible to nail with the timing correct or with with the articulation correct without, like, horrible string noise in between. And what's really tough is it actually takes a really good player to be able to punch stuff in and make it sound natural. So um, if those players aren't the best, then they're making their lives even more difficult. It just comes out sounding even more robotic than it than it necessarily had to. Nice. So, actually, with the robotic thing, I'll kind of shift here. So, that is one of the things that I appreciate about Periphery, and I think a lot of people pre- appreciate, is that you guys sound like a band, but you sound like an insanely well-oiled machine of humans playing very dexterous parts. Can you shed some light on any of the theories that go into Periphery while you're making records? Yeah, I mean, we very much have the mentality that whatever sounds good is the way to do it. Like we're not going to draw an arbitrary rule that you can't punch something in or you can't record something a certain way. But for the most part, uh, I like to get big takes, uh, you know, generally get a, a whole riff played through in one go and then look at punching stuff in. And, and I'm very lucky that I'm working with really, really good uh, guitarists and drummers, sorry, drummer and vocalist. Mm. And those guys are really, really adept at doing things like punching in and making it sound natural. But generally, uh, another thing which, which is really important to me is when I am editing, say, a guitar part, I'm trying to make it sound really tight. I don't do it hyper zoomed in using some kind of quantized tool or something mm-hmm. like that. I do it all by by hand and by ear. Mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily trying to shift things exactly onto the beat. I'm trying to make things sound right. Same thing goes for the drums because you know the drums are edited to a degree, but I'm mainly just making sure that the the backbeat and the the downbeats with the kicks are on the you know exactly on the beat, and all the space in between can be wherever it can be. And Matt's an amazing drummer with an amazing mm-hmm. sense of feel and swing. And um, if you just quantize that, it just sounds like a drum machine. But if you can leave some of that in, it just makes everything sound that much more organic. I like that. So what's a smart thing you see bands do during the recording process? I mean, I think the smartest thing that a band can do is just to be open to outside um, influence from from the producer. I think the smartest thing is when you get bands that are not protective over what they've written and they're mm-hmm. willing to explore any avenue. It's always really bad if you have an idea and you don't even know if it's good or not, but the band refuses to to even try it or they're so kind of focused on their original idea that they're not willing to accept hearing something different. So I think the best bands that I've worked with, and often it is the most professional bands, are the ones that are actually most open to having input from anyone else because they understand that everyone in the studio is on the same team, mm-hmm. just trying to make the, the music as good as it possibly can be. And it doesn't really matter whose idea it was. 
um, at the end of the day, it's whether the song is good and whether the part is good. So I think that's the smartest thing I see with bands is for them being just really open to any kind of outside influence and ready to, uh, ready to try things out because I think that can only lead to good things. I like that. So what happens when you and a band disagree about something? Well, I'd like to say that most of the time, unless I feel like it's something completely critical, I'm willing to let the band have their way. It's their record and it's their music. And if they feel completely staunchly that something has to be a certain way, it's not really up to me to say it can't be. I might push really hard and try and explain my my rationale for thinking uh, that whatever approach I want to take is, is uh, a good one for them to take. But ultimately, if they hear my side of things and they say, well, that's not the way we want to do it, then I'm not going to argue with them over it. Nice. So we've already kind of, you kind of answered a little, we usually go through a rapid fire thing of like, do you, do you use amplify, uh, amp simulators and sample drums and pitch correction? But it seems like you were already saying like, yes, I'm up for any tools. So yeah. um, how about mastering your own records? Do you do any of that? I do that. And mm-hmm. I'll say, to be honest, I don't necessarily like doing it. I mm-hmm. think for me, it's always good to have the outside input from someone. And there's a few mastering engineers that I've used and uh, even a couple of guys that are just mixing engineers that, whose ears I really trust that, that I've let master my records and been really happy with the results. But, you know, sometimes, in fact, most of the time, I'd say the masters come back very faithful to the mixes. And that's something reassuring to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at least I know I didn't get something completely wrong. But uh, at the same time, it's... Uh, it's at least reassuring that when I do have to master my own things, I'm probably not going to be a million miles off the mark. And um, I do make use of things like frequency analyzers and, and of course, referencing things to make sure that I'm not getting tunnel vision on my own mixes and make sure that the frequency content is the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, certainly it's my preference when the, the band has the budget for it, which, you know, I feel like most bands do. They just choose to overlook it sometimes. Yes. Uh, is, uh, is certainly to get things mastered elsewhere. And I think the records that have been mastered by someone else, at least to me, have that final layer of polish or maybe to me it's just enough different from my mix that I can appreciate it in a different way it doesn't sound mm-hmm. like my work in the same way that uh, that I can enjoy it in a different way but I think for me it's always kind of paid for itself the the pro mastering when I've had that done I feel very similar and it's a, there, there's something about hearing it back when somebody else does that that just makes me happier and I, I, I really appreciate when that does happen yeah, yeah, for sure. And and some of the mastering guys out there are incredibly I don't want to say OCD because maybe they're not literally OCD, but they're like they're very happy to go to extreme detail on stuff where perhaps at that point in the process I'm not <laughs> I'm not really feeling that. Mm-hmm. At that point I might not be trying to uh to be moving things around by 1 hertz at a time to try and get the best character of the low end, but I know a couple of guys that will do that and if they're going to do that on my behalf, that's only going to make my record sound better. Nice. So we're trying out an experimental question here. This could get erased if you you don't have anything. What's something you believe that everyone else thinks you're crazy to believe? Wow. I think, well, this is kind of like a negative version of that. Like, I think everyone seems to put a lot of stock into things that I don't really believe too much, which is the utmost importance of... um, preamps and converters which to me i'm not saying they don't make a difference but i think unless you if if you're recording at least fairly clean on a preamp like if you're not pushing it hard and you're using a fairly decent converter i feel like there's no nothing stopping you from getting an amazing sounding 
record or an amazing sounding source tone. Um, to me, it's always kind of shocking when I see people saying that, you know, something sounded really bad and then they, they tried a different converter and now it sounds amazing. To me, we're talking about fractions of a percent there. Even with preamps, obviously there are, there are audible differences between preamps, especially when you, when you drive them hard. But I don't think I've ever heard one, any time a bad source tone suddenly sound good because of the use of a really expensive preamp. I'm with you on the converter, not with you on the preamp. <laughs> really? You think you can take a, a bad source tone and make it good with a preamp? I, I will tell you this. So, so years ago, uh, I got the opportunity to work on the desk uh, that did Dark Side of the Moon and a whole bunch of other things. And it blew my mind to hear the difference between an SSL pre and then that and how it would mm-hmm. just literally... You're like, okay, well, that tone is pretty amazing now because it made that much of a difference. Wow. And I, I, I mean, I do think that there's times that, well, you know what I think it is? If you have a passable tone that you probably could fix better at the source, I think that you can get it to a passable place that's going to make it a lot better. And I, I, you know what I'll also say? A good preamp uh, will make it so it's easier to shape in the mix and take the EQ better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't argue that there aren't positive attributes to it for sure. I think, um, especially, you know, I'm thinking of things like an out of tune snare drum, for okay, example, yes, is yes. not going to get fixed by a need free. Yes. Or uh, an out of tune guitar isn't going to sound amazing through an API. I, I think what it really is for me is I just really try and focus on the source tone. Mm hmm make sure that that's as immaculate as it possibly can be. And then those factors, while they might make a, a small amount of difference to the, uh, to, the, to the end outcome, I think are going to be far outweighed by the quality of the source tone. I am with you there. Excellent. So how long do you like to take to track a song usually, usual case scenario? And then how long do you like usually take to mix a song? Yeah, so I mean, I guess for tracking... If I'm doing drums all in one go, I'd say, you know, a a drummer that is playing hard material or stuff that maybe requires a lot of memory can get through easily three songs in a day. Mm -hmm. And that's not really pushing it. That's maybe taking two hours over each song Um, and, you know, allowing time for breaks and for tuning and all the other stuff that goes on. Then guitars, if everything, if all pre-production is done, then guitars typically take about a day for one song and then bass can normally be done within the same day if it wasn't laid down with the bass that's uh, sorry with the drums that's not so common for me but i have done records where the bass and drums have played simultaneously and that can always be fun Mm -hmm. and then the vocals i generally like to spend a good day on uh sometimes too just depending on the vocalist's Mm -hmm. ability to to sing for a long time i'd much rather you know do less work over two days than burn out on day one and have uh have nothing left for day two so I, I like guess, the, you know, and then how about, a single is, is actually, to me, it's kind of, it's quite wasteful in time, yes. a lot of the time, especially if you have to set up all the drums and everything just to do one song. Get a guitar the band's tone. Really rehearsed and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you're doing an album, then you definitely get into a groove for sure. How about uh, mixing? How long do you, do you usually have for that? Yeah, it's it's tough. I think the initial mix generally comes together in, in terms of a few hours. And I've certainly got certain processes down certain ways of doing things that allow me to get to the results, especially with things like drums that um, that can require a lot of time sometimes. I've kind of figured out ways of getting where I want very quickly. Mm-hmm. But from there, you know, the last steps of things like automation, which I find myself spending more and more time doing, can take 
can take hours and then you know you have to take time away to come back and hear it again with fresh ears especially something like vocal automation mm-hmm. uh, you know i really like to go in depth to make sure every phrase is coming through the way it should and you know sometimes you come back and notice some words jumping out or some words too buried and you have to go and do even more automation but i generally like to think that within two days if I'm going from scratch, I can get a, a really good final mix. Um, mm-hmm. But again, if I'm doing an album, then and, and we're dealing with the same source tones, and I'm kind of using a, a template, which I'm then tweaking for each song, the next songs can be so much quicker. You just generally jump mm-hmm. into the automation side of things that much quicker. Agreed. So is there a good lesson that you've learned from another producer? Yeah, there's been a few. And I think, you know, honestly, I think the best lesson, which... I've heard so many times, perhaps even when I started uh, doing this, I would have heard it so many times, but I was just touching on it. To me, the source tone is king. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it took kind of sitting in on sessions or just visiting uh, producers that I really look up to and talking to them and seeing how they work to realize just how good a source tone can be um, and how little they were having to do to fix things in the mix to get the results that I was really looking for. I think that for me was the the biggest lesson when it finally hit home because it kind of freed me up. It, it meant that I could stop thinking about a piece of gear or a plug-in or something which was going to suddenly take my my mixes from where they were to something that would be really professional, amazing sounding and know that it's just decision after decision, micro decisions being made throughout and and just really being finicky about your source, your source tones to get that result. It's very difficult to cheat to that kind of result. I like that a lot. That is great advice. Tell me one of the best moments you've had in the studio. I think for me, just the best moments are always when I'm working with friends that I know really well that are also really professional musicians because they really understand the process. You can have fun with them. So, you know, they're your friends, so you can be bantering with them the whole time. But at the same time, they're able to get the work done in a really smooth fashion and Again, like I was saying earlier, I find that the more professional people are, the less they tend to try and second guess things and the more willing they are to just go with the flow and trust your judgment. And that's always the best feeling is when you feel like you really have the trust of the person you're working with and you can make the decisions as they're coming to you. You don't have to second guess. You just know that you're going to be able to to uh, commit to any decision which you want to. And the end result, in my experience, has always been really positive from those those kinds of experiences. Nice. What about one of the worst moments and what did you learn from that bad moment? There's been a few. I think some of the worst moments I've had is, well, there was one moment in particular on a record I won't name where the band had set up with the house engineer the day prior because I was flying in and there was not so much time. I didn't really approve that happening, but they went ahead and did it anyway. And we were recording drums to tape. Mm. You know, they'd already kind of got all the levels and everything. And I didn't really think too much about it because I assumed the house engineer knew what he was doing. But he actually ended up printing the snare top so hard to tape that it sounded like a mic that was just like, like you know, the Chad Blake mic technique uh-huh, or something yeah. where there's like one mic picking up the whole kit. And this was music where I really needed to have control over the sound of the snare. And it was... It was a real nightmare for mixing. I had an amazing drummer playing amazing parts and I had to use samples. And it was it was so tricky to even trigger because there was so little information. The kick drum was coming through so loud in the snare top mic. I think he also had it going through a compressor set with a really fast attack, which is the opposite of what I normally do. So, you know, moments like that where you get to mixing and you just realize that you don't have what you need and it's impossible to get the result that, that should have been there. That really was quite crushing for me. And it's just made me very particular about how I want to do things and about checking everything every time. And also just turning up with some of my own gear, some of my own microphones that I know really well 
and not being afraid so, so, to so, be. So for the nerds out there, what, what are some of your favorites? Uh, for for drums, um, I think probably my single favorite favorite microphone is the Josephson E22S. Oh man, which is the, the Steve Albini design. So, so yeah. snare or toms for that? I do toms. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the times I'm recording four toms, and I have four of them. So oh, wow! In that case, I, I I'll record you know all all four toms with them. If I'm recording a drummer where I have a free one, then generally I'll stick it on the snare as a second microphone because actually to me having a really tight pattern is probably one of the most important things so mm-hmm. i always like to have a beta 57 a sure beta 57 on snare hmm. um, to be able to reject the rest of the kit so that i don't have to use samples i can compress really hard and eq really hard but the josephson does have such an amazing transient that um, sometimes you don't need to worry about the the pattern to the same extent you don't need to compress it as hard yeah, that's yeah, an amazing Tom's mic. Just, yeah, Tom's, it's incredible. Uh, I have a pair of, of original C14, C414 wow. EBs with the gold capsules that I use on overheads pretty much every time. And they've just got an astounding picture of the kit. I love how they pick up both the cymbals and the shells. Mm. And uh, probably my favorite microphone that I picked up most recently was an AEA R88, the stereo uh-huh. ribbon. Um, which has like a, a bloomline configuration. Or you could do mid-side, I guess, with it. Mm-hmm. But just to put that in front of a drum kit, it blew my mind the first time I did it, how much kit information there was, yet at the same time the room coming in the back lobes. I mean, anyone that's used ribbons is aware of how these things work, but uh, for me, just the, the combination of such a great kit picture with such a great ambience at the same time was was mind-blowing. You could, For plenty of records, you could have probably just used that one microphone and been fine. Nice. That's really cool. So tell me about a record that you did that was big change in life for you. I think probably that first periphery record that I came in on, the Periphery 2, that was probably one of my first times where I was really trusted by a band that had a budget and was doing things properly with real drums and you know micing stuff up properly and not just doing the, the home recording style thing. That was an amazing experience for me. I learned a lot, but also uh, to have my name on that really put put my name out there and opened it up to uh, to other bands that might want to work with me. And then I think probably after that, when I did the Animals as Leaders record um, a few years ago, uh, that seemed to open up a lot of a lot of clients as well. And again, that was done. That was really interesting. We did that in LA. It was my first time kind of being in that environment. And that was really, really fun. It was, it was just a really fun process. It was a really intense process, but, um, you know, to work with incredible musicians and incredible music like that and to have the chance to kind of do everything exactly the way you want to was, uh, was awesome for sure. So tell me about a perfect record somebody else has made and what makes that record perfect. I think for me, mm-hmm. the most perfect record I've ever heard is Viesu by Thrice, mm. I want to say. That's how I'm feeling today. I mean, I know it's probably my favorite album of all time, so that mm. might not change anytime soon. But, you know, it's something which is pretty far outside, at least sonically, the 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 way that that I work, sorry, sonically as in like the production and the mixing Mm -hmm. is not really within the realm of the modern stuff that I'm doing, but there's something about that record that just pulls all the right emotional heartstrings for me. There's really creative stuff going on. Mm -hmm. You can just tell that the band was experimenting and as well for that to fall at its point in that band's timeline as it did where they'd really established themselves as this kind of post-hardcore band and then just went off the rails in this really experimental direction. And I know it cost them a lot of the fans of the the older sound, but Mm -hmm. to me, that was when they really matured into just, well, probably one of my all-time favorite bands. So that record for me is every song 
is incredible. Every song has something unique that keeps me listening to it. There's some really cool moments. I don't know, just even simple things like I forget the name of the song. There's one where in the middle, the drums pan right off to one side uh-huh. for, for some reason, and you have the vocal on the other side of your head. And I know that's not exactly a new idea, but the way it happens in the song is almost like your head's been tilted 90 degrees, like up is now left and or something. I don't know. No, that record like that. has a great creative vibe to it that I think still maintained what made the band good before that record. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And yeah, for me, I think that's, that's got to be as close to a perfect record as, as can be that I've heard. Nice. So tell me about five of your favorite records and how they affected your growth as a musician, producer. Cool. Well, I mean, I guess, I guess I'm going to discount thrice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah um, we'll skip, we'll skip think, that one. Yeah, I think one record that that really, really changed my life because I was listening to metal, mm-hmm. but it was generally more of the kind of metal core style of thing that was very popular in the early 2000s. And someone introduced me to a band called Sixth. Mm-hmm. They actually reformed recently, but but as it was, they broke up just a couple of years after I found out about them. And they were doing something so ahead of their time with really amazing guitar playing, um, really dissonant stuff that's not unlike Dillinger Escape Plan, mm-hmm. um, combined with just an incredible sense of melody. And I don't even know how to describe it, but but their, both of their albums that they had at the time, I'm gonna gonna cheat and say two, that the. the yeah, Death of a Dead Day and uh, The Trees Are Dead and Dried Out, both to me were just, it was like a whole new world of, of metal opened up for me. And it was specifically those albums that really helped me bond with uh, with Misha when we first met because we were both such fans of it. And I know for sure that that completely changed how I viewed the music that I wanted to make and um, what could be done with extreme metal and what could be done with dissonance and, and combining that with melody. So for me, that was, that was really huge. Hmm. I think for me, another album that really changed a lot was Frames by Ocean Size. Mm-hmm. And they're a British band that, again, just broke up a few years after I found out about them, which is very annoying. They had put out a couple of albums at this point, and I think they got a little bit... They, they flirted with commercial success, and then I think it, things didn't go so well, and they got kind of bitter about it, and they put out this album that was just a middle finger to all of that. They put out an incredibly dark, non-commercial kind of record. And if you're not familiar with their music, it's... I mean, I guess people like to liken them to um, to Tool, because mm-hmm. they do have often kind of odd time signature, very repetitive ideas, which just kind of turn around and around in your mind as you listen to it. Um, but there's so much more to it to me. Uh, there's a lot of uh, kind of that British angry, I don't know if it's angry or just moody kind of sound, something like you might hear in in Radiohead or a band mm. like that. And um, to me, that record is just pure brilliance. I really, really love the the way it sounds for what it is, but also just the, the reckless abandon of some of the songs and the variation within the songs. Um, that to me is one of the ultimate vibe records for sure. Nice. Yeah, I, I really liked a couple songs from them over the years. Yeah, yeah, they've got some great ones. And I actually never got to see them live. And that's mm. something I'm very sad about. Going back a little bit further, I think for me, uh, Deftones' White Pony mm. changed my life for sure. I was a lot younger when that came out. And I think I only bought it because 
I was buying mountain bike magazines at that time. I was into mount. I was terrible at mountain biking, but I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Mm. And they always had like a little music section at the very beginning, and where they said what they were listening to. And I pretty much just bought whatever I saw there because I thought those guys were so cool. Mm. I had to listen to the music they were they were listening to. That's that's a really funny way of getting into the Deftones. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. And I think I got it. And I mean, for someone that was listening to like pop punk and stuff like that. Mm. To get that record, which, I mean, Chino's vocal style is so unlike anything else. Mm -hmm. And then there's something so dark about that record and, and almost industrial. I don't know. It was like nothing I'd ever heard before. And I think I didn't... I didn't even really know if I liked it, but I think I just <laughs> I just wanted to like it so much that I persevered and it took on this this incredible significance to me. I don't know. I don't know that the songs on that album still to me every single one of them has amazing memories tied to it. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall during oh, the recording process of that record and to really see what how those those songs came together because some of them are just some moments of sheer genius on that record for sure. Yeah, it's, it just seems like on that record, like every like while Chino goes so over the top with vocal effects, every one of them is emotionally perfect for what he's conveying lyrically on that that record, and like the songs just feel so amazing in that way. Yeah, I really agree with that. I mean, it's unlike anything else for sure. Mm. Yeah, I think that's one of the records I've listened to the most in my life, actually. Really, mm. that particular one? Because I know a lot of people got into Around the Fur and. You know, this was back in the day where I only had pocket money to buy one album at a time. So I started with that and then kind of worked in a non-sequential order through their, through their back catalogue. But uh, yeah, White Pony to me was always the one. I think another album that really formed me as a guitar player, not too long after Deftones actually, was um, my guitar teacher introduced me to Rust in Peace by Megadeth. <laughs> nice, nice. And, you know, I was playing all sorts of different styles of guitar. I wasn't really a metal guitarist, but he told me, you know, well, if you want to develop your right-hand technique, you should really try playing some thrash metal. Mm. And I hadn't really heard much before. I'd heard some Metallica, but when I heard that album, I was like, wow, this is so fast and technical and all these riffs are so amazing. And he gave me the tab book, which later I found mm. out was really inaccurate. There's really weird <laughs> ways of playing riffs. But anyway. Yeah, really really but, a, tab, a tab of 90s stuff? Uh, inaccurate? I, I can't imagine this. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> really weird stuff in hindsight, like massive position shifts when notes are right next to each other and things like that. But anyway, I learned that record from cover to cover and most of the solos too and that really formed uh, the basis of my guitar technique and and hmm. my idea of what good riffing was as well that was that was hugely important to me I, I can't even imagine how many times i've listened to those songs just learning them hmm. and then i guess i should round things out by maybe looking at something which is uh, slightly more uh, distant from this style i think one of the most beautiful albums i've ever heard um, is by the cinematic orchestra and it's called Mafler, and um, it's just—it's a completely different style of, of music. I've of never heard—I've never heard of this. So tell us about it. Cinematic Orchestra. Um, I don't really know the the history of the band too much. I believe they formed first just writing music for a silent film, and then kind of carried on as a project. But it's jazz, I guess. But it's like a singer songwritery kind of thing mixed with jazz, mixed with even on some records there's there's like a DJ not scratching or something, but sampling. Um, you know, jazz loops and things, and that's forming the basis of the songs. But mm. Maffler has a, a more songwriting kind of feel to me. 
uh, there's a couple of tracks on there, particularly the the intro track to build a home is just piano and voice and um, is incredibly emotional and and beautiful. I didn't really, I I forget why I I started listening to that band, but I remember the first time I put that on, I wasn't really, I just put it on as background music and I ended up just transfixed for the entire thing. And still, if I need to relax or if I just haven't listened to it in a while, then I always, I always come back to it just to, to relive that experience again. Nice. What's your favorite record of recent times and what inspires you about it? Hmm. That's a tough one. Let me think. This is the toughest question I ask everybody. Yeah. <laughs> because I feel like the albums which you listen to when you're younger maybe are, are more formative and mm-hmm. they, they have a greater significance to you. Whereas now, especially with the internet age, there's so much music at all times and I'm listening to so much different music, it's difficult to place the same importance. It's like that thing of like, you don't know what's really going to stay and last all the time. But Right. Can I say something from 2013? Sounds great. Yeah, I'd say for me in recent times, the album Asymmetry by Carnival. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's a great um, record. It's an amazing record, and I didn't even really know how to take it at first because coming out of the previous album, Sound Awake, that was this incredibly organic but hi-fi sounding record. Uh, one of my favorite sounding of all time, for sure. And um, and amazing ambience on that record to go to asymmetry is, is quite kind of harsh and minimalist the way it's it's recorded but with time i've really come to appreciate that and i think as well i, I had the opportunity to see them live a few times on the tour the asymmetry tour where i think uh that really hit home some of the songs where maybe on the record it's not quite clear how complex or or detailed some of the things they're doing is yet in a live environment, especially if you can see them up close and personal, you really get a sense of this energy that's, um, that's underneath the songs. And then to come back to the album again, it just kind of heightens the whole experience. I think that for me was, was a really, really amazing album that, that I imagine I'm going to keep listening to for quite some time along with the other ones by carnival as well. You know, what's really funny about this. So I think you guys toured with them actually. Uh, thank you scientist. Yeah, we have. Yeah. Uh, so when I was doing their record, the two records that they brought in that they're like, well, you should listen to this so you get what we want was Carnival and you guys. Wow. So that's really interesting. <laughs> so that's kind of funny. It's like I was introduced to both you and them on that record. Wow. Which Carnival record did they bring in? Was it Sound I was the Awake? one before that because yeah, I guess that, we did that record. I want to say we did that record in 2013. I can't even remember. I mean, it's been so long, but uh, yeah, that's that's pretty funny. Yeah, Sound Away came out in 2009. Gosh, I can't believe how old that is. Um, but both, both, both amazing sounding records. Yeah, for sure. Very different, but both, both incredible. So you said that you're in the studio with Periphery. Are you producing? Yeah, well, I think with Periphery, everyone has such a clear picture of what they want um, from the band. Everyone kind of has their hand in the producing in the in the technical dictionary sense of guiding the creative process. Um, but I am overseeing alongside Misha. Um, we're doing things a little bit more stripped down this time, actually. We're just working in his apartment at the moment doing pre-pro, and we might well just record the final guitars and, and bass there. And actually, we're going to do the drums last, which is something I've done just out of scheduling conflicts in the past and really enjoyed the results of. Maybe it's not the perfect way to do things, but it is kind of cool if the drummer can play to the final tracks. I think I think that really is going to make it a more enjoyable experience for him. It's going to allow him to really make sure the parts he plays are the best. He can he can rehearse these things over and over, um, you know, with any changes that we might have made during the the recording process and. 
Um, I think that's going to be really cool. I, I think it's going to be really know, cool. I have to tell you, I've been doing that more and more lately, and I think it's something that we are all told is not something you're supposed to do, but music has changed. Like, just the same way that, like, um, so many bands are like, oh, well, you got done with drums, so we're doing bass. It's like, ah, well, that was kind of from an R&B tradition. And when you're playing more riff-based music that's all based around the guitars, it's sometimes better to see where we go creatively with the guitars. We'll do bass after guitars, maybe. Absolutely. And, I do that just for tuning reasons. Yes, exactly. Time, that yeah, that especially these days. Um, but I think it's an interesting thing is that, like, you know, if you say on an internet message board with recording nerds that you're recording drums last... I mean, basically prepared to have your life ruined by internet <laughs> trolls. And of I have to tell you, I think I get way better results every time I do that on a record. Wow, well, that's that's reassuring to hear. I, I've certainly, as I say, I've done it a few times and it's always come out good. I think one of the other nice things is to be able to edit the drums to the final takes. Mm -hmm. um, because I think that's going to allow me to leave more unedited because I'll be listening to it and I can just say, oh, this sounds great, so I don't need to touch it. Um, whereas if it's forming the bed of the of what you're doing, it's so much more tempting to move things around. I, I think you're totally right here. So, so is there anything else uh, that you've been working on that you could tell us about? I've been mixing a lot of things just on and off. I do a lot of remote mixing. Uh, I think one of the... Yeah, one of the things I did more recently was uh, an album for a band called Good Tiger, who are a band entirely of Friends, and actually it was their album that I was really thinking of when I was thinking of having a really good time recording Friends that are really professional. And I was very happy with how that came out. That was also mastered by somebody else, and again, I was thinking of that a little bit earlier when you were, you were asking the mastering question. Um, so I was really happy with how that record came out. That was a fun process that was spread out over a few different sessions, but uh, that was really awesome. It's uh, funny, I just, really, just put them on my to listen to list because I saw Mike Mowry take a picture with uh, them. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, Mike manages them. Nice. And yeah, coming up this year, I have actually have some really cool sessions, but I don't know if I'm allowed to say anything about them. I don't know. Uh, it might uh, understood. be... I, I, it might be totally fine, but I'm just going to err on the side of caution. Um, I have a couple of... I have one cool session, which is actually engineering only, which is quite rare for me. I, I normally mix the things I engineer, but actually looking forward to that. I think it's going to be fun to be able to engineer things and not worry so much about what comes afterwards. Just be able to focus on engineering and nothing else and then i have a really cool mixing project coming up in the first half of this year that i'm really looking forward to but at the moment my schedule's kind of cleared open a little bit so i can dedicate as much time as i can to this periphery record and that's always got to be my priority of course if you enjoyed this episode please remember the golden rule of the internet that if you enjoy something you got for free please tweet Facebook share or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can be also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 